4th of July. I'm ready to pop these firecrackers. Don't pop them on me. What a police guy. Hey, police right hey, you. What's up? And welcome to this week's episode. And in case this is your first time checking it out, my name's Harmony, and I'll be your host. Today is July 4th. So to all of you who celebrate, happy Independence Day. And if you're listening to this after the 4th of July, well, I hope it was a blast. <laughs> you see what I did there? Blast, because fireworks, bang, boom, bang. Okay, you know what? You're not here for my comedic skills, so let's move along and start this podcast. You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. Okay. So I have been seeing the trailer for The Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, everywhere. No, I have not seen the movie, but I did want to look into the true story that inspired the movie. For those of you who are new around here and don't really watch a lot of horror movies, The Conjuring Universe does base everything off of a true story. Now obviously if it's Hollywood and the movies, it's definitely embellished. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a real story there. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Secrets of the Supernatural. I'm your moderator, Tony Spera, along with Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren. Tonight, we're going to speak of a fascinating case that happened right here in Connecticut, the Brookfield Demon Murder Case. Now, I do plan on seeing this movie, but however, I want to say something. If you have not seen this movie and you do not like spoilers, Come back to this episode after you have. However, if you do want to know the true story or you're not planning on seeing the movie and you don't give two shits about spoilers, then stick around. And like I said, I haven't seen the movie and I'm going to spoil it for myself as well. Because we're looking into the real story of Arne Cheyenne Johnson. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. Okay. The reason that I chose this topic and this case is because I really wanted to dive into something really fucking creepy. It's been a while since I've talked about really scary things. Not that crime isn't terrifying, because believe me, murder, rape, torture, killings, that's fucking scary. I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to be faced with any of that. But there's just something truly terrifying about the paranormal. We know crimes happen every single day. However, we don't know what happens after you die. We don't know the truth about what really there is. At least not until we die. So we don't really know if ghosts, demons, angels, all that are real. Unless you've experienced something. And Arne Cheyenne Johnson, he apparently did. Or so he claimed. Arne's case, known as The Devil Made Me Do It, obviously. I mean, it's the name of the movie. It became so well-known because it was the first court case in the United States in which the defense was trying to prove its innocence based on demonic possession. And obviously, if you're possessed by a demon, then you cannot be held personally responsible for the crime. Or, at least, that was Arne's defense. Whatever was going on, whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. On November 24th, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arne was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for killing his landlord, Alan Bono. Now let me explain a little bit here before we really dive in. According to testimony by the Glatzel family, 11-year-old David Glatzel allegedly was possessed 
by a demon. Now I know you're wondering, what the fuck does this have to do with R and Harmony? I don't understand. Well, let me explain. After David's family witnessed so many events that were creepy and terrifying and just flat out fucking ominous, they were like, all right, we need to get some help. Enter Ed and Lorraine Warren. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this case right from the start? We were contacted by Father Dennis, who at that time was pastor of St. Joseph's Church in Brookfield, Tony. Mm -hmm. And the call came in and he spoke about a young boy <clears throat> who he had been trying to help, but recognized it as a case of possession. Ed and Lorraine were considered a last ditch effort to try and cure David. The Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. Now, in case you don't know, you have to basically reach out to the Vatican and ask them to send somebody to do an exorcism. And there's only a certain amount of people in the world that are deemed like basically credible to do it. You Like I'm an ordained minister, but that doesn't mean I can go and start playing with demons and exercise them. Cause fuck no, that's not happening. But also I don't know what the fuck I'd be doing, you know, just because I have that ability to be like, hey, I'm an ordained minister. I did that shit online. I don't know anything else. I just wanted to be able to marry people that somebody said, no, I'm not gonna marry you. And I wanted to be like, hey, you're in love. Come here, I'll make sure you're miserable like everybody else. Get married, I don't care. But. I can't perform an exorcism, only a certain amount of people can, and Ed was somebody who could, but he could also reach out to the Vatican and be like, yo, uh, there's some demons, so we should, we should do something about that. So they're doing everything they can to try to cure David. The process continued for several days. It only concluded according to those who were present when the demon fled David's body and decided to go into Arn. Then, several months later, Arn killed his landlord during a heated conversation. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed by a demon. However, the judge ruled that such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in the court of law. Arn was subsequently convicted, though he only served five years of a 10 to 20 year sentence. Obviously, this trial attracted media coverage from all over the world. It has been turned into books, stories, and obviously, movies. Okay, with all of that said, let's go ahead and dive into this. And let's figure out for ourselves, did the devil make him do it? This is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. Alright, let's get started. <laughs> In an episode of Discovery Channel's A Haunting, Arne and Debbie Glatzel provide their first-hand accounts for their versions of events. They say that they did not believe in demonic activities or like demonic possession themselves. They did claim that their father happened to say that he witnessed demonic possession though. You know, good old dad sharing his stories of demonic possession. <laughs> Just a regular Thanksgiving. Both Arne and Debbie were adamant in their support of the Warrens when they went and shared their recollection of events as well. According to Arne and Debbie, the paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property that they had just acquired themselves. Why does it always start with like a brand new fucking house? I bet you it was really nice and massive. Probably built in like 1901, just super beautiful. 
my dream home. And that's what sucks. All of the houses that I really want one day, the beautiful old Victorians, you know, big, beautiful, <clears throat> they're usually occupied already by ghosts or demons. Like, ooh, even better. That's a great roommate. No, thank you, Satan. But that's always the case. You get a new rental or like a new house you just buy and boom, there's a demon in your basement. And why the fuck is it always in Connecticut? You know what? I'm getting sidetracked. Let's continue. Now, David says that he saw an old man and that terrified him. This old man that appeared to him started pushing him and was just trying to scare him. Now, Arne and Debbie say that David was using this old man excuse because he didn't want to clean, or at least that's what they believe, that David didn't want to, you know, help them out with cleaning up their property because, like, why, why should he? He's a kid. He should be playing outside, not sweeping or mopping. Now, David had a comeback to this. He said the old man told him that he vowed to harm the Glatzels. David said that this old man didn't just appear as an old man, that sometimes he appeared as some sort of demonic beast. When it was in this demonic sort of form, it would mutter words in Latin to David and threaten to steal his soul. The rest of the family did say that they heard noises coming from the attic. However, nobody except for David ever saw the old man. So I've lived in a house in New England that had a huge attic. Like you could have turned this attic into its own loft. Now, I'm not going to lie and say that there wasn't a haunting there because there was and it's actually all documented on YouTube. If you want to check it out, you can actually check it out on uh, Whalehead Haunts or Whalehead Road Haunts. I'm not even sure anymore. It's like super old. I think it's like 10 years old now. But yeah, there was a haunting going on in that house and it had all been centered around the attic of that house. I mean, there's some terrifying EVPs that I caught, but I'm getting sidetracked again. Let's continue. So the family was hearing shit in the attic as well, but they never saw this old man that David saw. So they didn't really believe his story. Then after David began experiencing night terrors and exhibiting really strange behavior and obtain unexplainable scratches and bruises on him, the family decided to call on a Catholic priest. The priest then attempted to bless the house. This is when the family decided that the house was just far too evil and they could no longer rent it. Mm -hmm. Now, he spoke of David and David's problems he said that David had a slight learning disability, and but there was very bizarre behavior occurring to this young 11-year-old boy. Now, David started having visions, and they would get worse and worse. They didn't just happen at night. Like, he wasn't just having nightmares and night terrors and seeing things when he'd wake up. This started happening during the day, too. Can you imagine the fear of this little boy? That's just, that's terrifying. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to help and assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialize next to David. This, according to Lorraine herself, is an apparent indication of a malevolent presence. And for those of you that don't know what malevolent means, it's a demon. Or something just really fucking bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. So Debbie and her mother tell the Warrens that they saw David being beaten and choked by invisible hands. Afterwards, red marks would appear on his neck. During this whole process, David began growling and hissing and speaking in another worldly voice. He then recited passages from the Bible 
or Paradise Lost. The Glatzels even stated that every single night, someone in the family would remain awake with David because he was suffering through spasms and convulsions. Finally, the Warrens told the family what was going on. David was possessed, not by just one demon, but several. David was then subjected to three, quote, lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a moment, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. But would you like to know what this little boy told Lorraine about? It was all about the manslaughter that Arne would later commit. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. This boy loved his mother. He loved his father. And uh, at one time, he actually broke the mother's nose, I believe. Arnie Johnson, who was a young man that was engaged to his, uh, his sister, Debbie, would help every night to control the boy. He'd come home from work. He was a landscaper, worked very hard. And uh, he'd have his supper, lay down. But then just around 11 o'clock was when this would occur to David. <clears throat> As Lorraine said, all of a sudden, you look at him, he was normal. The next second, it wasn't David anymore. And uh, this would go on until the sun came up. Uh, the boy would roll around, uh, he would go into fits. Uh, I seen one time when he actually levitated, had extreme strength, uh, terrible obscenities would come from him. And Arnie Johnson, uh, who was a young man, who I would call probably uh, an all-American boy. He loved sports. He was into baseball. He had many awards for baseball. He loved fishing, and uh, he and Debbie, his fiance, who was David's sister, would go off fishing, and they'd have a good time. But this kid, 18 years old at the time, would stay awake all night long and then go to work the next morning. But he made a fatal mistake. One night he said, and he, he screamed, at these devils. Mm -hmm. Take me on. Leave my little buddy alone. According to eyewitness testimony, Arne coerced one of the demons to leave David and offered himself instead. I volunteer! I volunteer! I volunteer as tribute! Now Arne did this because he was participating in David's exorcisms. <laughs> you know, just hanging out helping some demons find their way back to hell with some friends on a normal Saturday night. Nothing to see here. It is at this point that a haunting veers away from the circumstances of Arne's possession, as described by those who are involved. And according to the show, a few days after Arne egged this demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by a demon, which allegedly took place out in his car and it forced him to drive into a tree. Fortunately, Arn was unharmed. Obviously, because I'm telling you about him today. Now, Arn recollects that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. Basically, at this point, he says that from here forward, he doesn't really have the best uh, mind memories, a lot of blackouts, a lot of missing moments, and it's like he wasn't there. He says that he encountered the demon at a well and made eye contact with it. This is when he became possessed. 
The Warrens claim that they warned Arn not to do this. You know, you don't antagonize a demon and you damn sure don't invite it to possess you. I mean, if we learned anything, you can't even invite a vampire into your house. Why would you ask a demon to take over your soul? I mean, honestly, if one got into mine, it would quickly leave because you'd be like, oh my god, how the fuck are you surviving, sweetheart? That's simple. Coffee and regret. At this point, however, David's condition is getting worse. At this point, Arn and Debbie decide, you know what, we need to, we need to find our own place, okay? Let's just kind of get away for a little bit. You see, David was living with Debbie's mom because David was her brother. So they decided it's time for us to go. There's a lot going on at home. Let's go get our own apartment. This apartment was close to where Debbie worked. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, who was a new resident in Brookfield. And she was hired to be a dog groomer. Debbie and Arne began renting an apartment that was close to her work, and after moving in, Arne started to exhibit really, really odd behavior. According to Debbie, it was a lot like David's. This made Debbie believe that Arne had become possessed. According to her, Arne would fall into a trance-like state where he would growl and hallucinate, but later he would have no memory of that happening. But, um... You know, one thing that we have to stress that's very important is that we knew it was inevitable that there was going to be a tragedy. We knew it. We even notified the police. Because of the violence. And Lorraine did notify the police, Chief. What did they, what did they have to say about it? Well, there was nothing we could do in advance. In other words, before the fact, there was before nothing. Before the fact, right. there was nothing they could do except watch and go to the calls whenever they would happen at the home. Mm-hmm. But all the priests knew it. It wasn't just myself. It was <coughs> all of the priests who were well aware that it was inevitable there would be a tragedy. But never, ever did we think it would be Arnie Johnson. Hey guys, in order to continue with this podcast, I need to tell you guys about our sponsor. The only reason I can continue to bring you guys a weekly episode is thanks to them. So if you guys could not only listen to these adverts, but maybe go check them out, that would be super rad. Because the more you support them, the more you support me, and the more content I can give you. First up, I want to tell you about Doom and Groom. If you head over to doomandgroom.net, you will be met with some of the most amazing skin and hair care products that I have ever personally used. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. All of their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe. All of Doom and Groom's products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and check out all of their beards, oils, and body butters. And if you decide you'd like to get something, go ahead and use my promo code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your order. So now I'm going to take a second to tell you guys about O's Vape. If you head on over to letsos.com, you will be met by an amazing and unique vaping experience. O's Vape is all about a tobacco-free universe, a place where adults can enjoy a smooth and relaxing tobacco-free vape experience. The nicotine provided is that of the highest pharmaceutical grade quality and so are the rest of their ingredients. Each disposable vape is equivalent to four packs of cigarettes. You can choose from 12 different flavors. I personally recommend lemon tart and it is what I consistently vape. I am going to be trying some new flavors in the next week, however, and I'll let you know if that changes. 
and you guys will be hearing in the future from people who I know in my personal life that also use O's Vape. So head on over to letsos.com and see what they're all about. And if you find yourself creating a cart when you go check out, use my promo code HARMONY for 30% off your order. Thank you again to Doom and Groom and O's Vapor for making sure that I can continue to create content for you every week because they pay my bills. And hey, a big thanks to you, the listener, for toughing it out through the ads. It's about time we jump back into this episode. It was just getting good. And the devil did make him do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, we were Arnie Johnson was under diabolical possession. He didn't know what happened for at least two hours. In that two hours, he had killed Alan Bono. Now let's talk about murder. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I don't know what the fuck that was, and I'm not going to do that again, so let's just continue and please don't stop listening. On February 16, 1981, Arne called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service. However, he wasn't sick. He just wanted to go to work with Debbie, and he did. It wasn't just him, though. It was like a family outing, apparently. So Debbie, Arne, and his sister, Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin, Mary, along with Alan Bono, the landlord, and Debbie's employer, were all hanging out at the kennel. Eventually, they all were like, hey, I'm fucking hungry. Are you hungry? Yeah. So they decided to go have a group lunch. They didn't just go to a restaurant, though. Mm -mm, no, they went to a bar. Yeah, you know where this is going. Hit a button, Morty. Give me a beat. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Um. Oh, yeah. You gotta get swifty. You gotta get swifty in here. It's time to get swifty. After a lot of liquid lunch, they decide to head back to the kennel. Debbie then takes the girls to go get pizza because, you know, no one actually ate anything. Debbie insisted she would be back very soon because she thought maybe something bad was gonna happen. A lot of people drinking, a little bit of a temper, seemed like there was some disdainment. What was going on? She didn't know, but she was gonna be back as fast as she could. Now, when everyone returns, they discover that Alan is agitated and extremely drunk. At this point, Debbie asks everyone to leave the room. But then, Alan grabs Mary and refuses to let her go. Arne then tells Alan to release Mary. Now, here is what Wanda told the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Arne away. All of a sudden, Arne was growling like an animal and then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Alan repeatedly. Alan ended up dying several hours later. According to Arne's lawyer, Alan had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Damn! Alright guys, you may start hearing fireworks in the background, and I'm sorry, but I can't exactly stop the celebration to create this episode. But I do want to get this episode out for you, so we're going to have to deal with it. Yay, happy 4th! Arne was discovered two miles from the site of the murder. He was then held at Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail for $125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Took a terrible toll on this family. You cannot believe the emotional and physical toll. I, I always said that if a court would allow us to bring our evidence into this guy, that, that there is uh, the, the lawyer, the Martin Manella. Yeah. And uh, he put 
his position uh, in jeopardy as a lawyer by going in on this case. But he knew that the boy mm -hmm. was possessed. He felt we could win the case, never knowing that the judge would not allow us to bring in our evidence. Mm -hmm. But Lorraine and I set a precedent in 1990 in which we did win a case where a, a woman was driven out of a house in Hebron, Connecticut. That was haunted by ghosts. We would have won this case too, and Arnie Johnson would have not gone to prison. The day after the murder, Lorraine Warren went to the Brookfield police to tell them that Arn, wouldn't you know, yeah, he was possessed yesterday, so like, he didn't mean to do that. In fact, he doesn't even know he did because, ah, it was a demon. Surprise! Well, this whole paranormal aspect caused a media blitz to surround the case. Obviously, because Ed and Lorraine were involved, that really, really added to it. These were world-renowned, you know, paranormal psychologists and demonologists and, like, haunted condosaurs. You know, they investigated this shit. They would go around and have lectures, they had a book, they had movies, they were kind of the big honchos. Basically, if anything went bump in the night, they were there to investigate it. So because Ed and Lorraine were involved in what they did, Martin Manila, who was Arn's lawyer, would receive phone calls from all over the world telling him that he was involved with the demon murder trial. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. Martin Manila traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two other similar cases. Those cases, however, never went to trial. He planned to fly in an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense as well. So he was basically out here like, uh-uh, you're gonna speak up about the demonic shit you saw, right? Mm-hmm, because my client's not going to jail, is he? No, he's not. Or something like that. The trial then took place in Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury, and this began on October 28th, 1981. Immediately, Arne's lawyer attempts to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. Again, this was something never, ever before done. This young man wouldn't hurt anyone or anything. You have to know Arnie Johnson like we knew him. Mm -hmm. Very polite, uh, a very good living young man, very hard working. He worked until five o'clock, landscaping, cutting trees, have his supper, go to bed until 11. Then he'd get up and he'd step all night long with holding this young boy down. Of course, the plea that his client was possessed was immediately just shot down. They were like, no, mm -mm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't think so. This was all decided by the presiding judge, Robert Callahan. <laughs> That's weird. That's my son's last name. Okay. See, Judge Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law. According to Judge Callahan, this was due to the fact that there was a lack of real evidence. Judge Callahan also stated that it would be irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony that would even pertain to the thought of possession being the purpose for the murder. Or not purpose, the defense, my apologies, even though it's kind of like tomato, tomato. The defense then decided to imply that Arn acted in self-defense. <laughs> you know, because if you can't say, hey, I was possessed, you can say, hey, I was protecting myself. <laughs> Again, tomato, tomato, I guess. I don't know. 
Now, the jury was told that they were not even legally allowed to consider that demonic possession was a viable explanation for the murder. Yeah, so uh, they were super serious. Demonic possession was not allowed to be a plea, and the jury couldn't even think that it was a possibility. The jury did deliberate for 15 hours over a three-day period before they finally convicted Arne on November 24, 1981. Arn was then convicted of first-degree manslaughter. So Arn was sentenced to 10 to 20 years jail time. However, he only served five. Yeah, so that's it. Like, he was found guilty of manslaughter for murder. Of, that happened in broad daylight with people around. And, uh, you know, it was manslaughter because self-defense, because he was possessed, but you couldn't go with that because... Legally, you couldn't even think that that was a possibility, even though a lot of people say that was the reason why. All right. Okay, let's talk about aftermath. Everything that's sort of been done, said, and spoken about since this. Because Ed and Lorraine have been said to have been faking it. Yeah. <laughs> A lot like your girlfriend did last night. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Please don't. Please don't unfollow me. I love you. So the whole ordeal, the whole incident, the whole matter, the whole paranormal case, all of it, it all became a uh, television film titled The Demon Murder Case. After the made-for-TV film was done, preparations began for a feature film all about the case. This was eventually stalled due to internal conflicts. Then, in 1983, Gerard Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine herself stated that profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that about $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006 by iUniverse, David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzel Jr. sued the authors and the book publishers for violating their rights to privacy. They also cited, quote, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Carl stated that the book allegedly claimed that he committed abusive acts against his family and others. This was not true, according to Carl. He then went on to say that the whole possession story was a complete hoax. Except his family wasn't the one that made it up. No, it was Ed and Lorraine. Yeah, so Ed and Lorraine, according to Carl, completely made up the demonic possession story to exploit the Glatzel family. But mainly, Carl's little brother, David. You see, David had a mental illness. Well, at least in the 80s, what could they considered mental illness, he had a learning disability. Again, in the 80s, we still had sanitariums, you know, all around the world, so I don't know. So according to Carl, they wanted to exploit the Glatzels and David. He also went on to say that the book portrayed him as the villain because he didn't believe in the supernatural claims at all. He then went on to say that the Warrens told him that the whole demonic possession story would make the family millionaires. And not just that, but they could ensure that it would help get Arn out of jail. You guys remember Debbie's fiance? Yeah, Debbie was Carl's sister, so yeah. Win-win, right? Millionaires and he doesn't have to go to jail. 
except the whole fact that somebody's still dead. Like, I feel like that's a whole miss here. Like, what, like, you can't just blame someone's death on a demon. Now, I'm not saying demons don't exist or anything. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I am still saying the fact that someone's life was taken. So, I mean, yeah, I guess you can throw money at anything. Look at OJ, but whatever. Don't come for me, okay? I don't care. I do think he did it. But, hey, I also think that Chris Watts' girlfriend was involved with the murder, too, of uh, Shanann, so my opinion doesn't matter. But the, the fact of the matter is, a man did die. And demonic possession cannot be used. Money could, and this was a big factor, so Carl kind of, I guess, was like, alright, whatever. So, according to Carl Glatzel, the publicity that was generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school, and he lost friends, he, he lost jobs, business opportunities, it really hurt his life. That was a fucking lie. So basically, all of the claims that Ed and Lorraine Warren not only told him and his family, but told the world, he says, were fake. It was all a lie, and it destroyed him and his family, but on the flip side, Debbie and Arne have stood by the Warrens the whole time. Now, in 2007, Carl began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley. He did this to share his version of the incident that forced him to drop out of school, lose his friends, his business opportunities, you know, everything. Or what we come to know as the Devil Made Me Do It case. All about the events that surrounded his brother and what really happened according to Carl. Lorraine defended her work along with the family, saying that even six priests were involved in the incident and agreed at the time that the little boy was in fact possessed. She went on to say that all of the supernatural events that she described in the book did really happen. The author of the book, The Devil in Connecticut, even states that he wrote the book because, quote, the family wanted the story told. He even states that he has video of over a hundred hours of his interviews with the family and that every single one of them signed off on the book as accurate before it even went to print. Carl Jr.'s father, Carl Glatzel Sr., denies telling the author that his son was ever possessed. And again, Arne and Debbie, who are now married, have always supported the Warrens. They go on to say that the Glatzels in question, yeah, they're simply suing for the money. And this brings us to 2021. Arne and Debbie have uh, two kids, and there's a movie coming out now all about the murder that Arne committed in 1981. His behavior was excellent, but Tony, he was, uh, he, him and Debbie were married in prison. Oh, they were? They, were, they have they, a business together. They today, live in the today. They're, they have they're two, happy. They they're, have two sons. They're normal. Everything's normal. Oh, they're yes. Very normal. Oh, they're now, very how about normal. David? Is David doing okay? David, David, David works with his dad. Very normal. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's uh, fine. And there you have it. The case of the devil made me do it. I'm not sure what to believe. I don't know if Arne was truly possessed and it led him to go stabby, stabby, stick, stick against Alan Bono or if they were just so intoxicated and a fight broke out or some disagreement really happened and next thing you know boom boom alan's dead that sounded really insensitive and i promise it wasn't meant to be i just don't know what to think of this case i myself do believe in the paranormal and supernatural and have had my own occurrences however to think that this could lead to somebody's murder 
is very intense. And it's not like it's the first time that paranormal incidences have had murder or death involved. A lot of exorcisms, people are charged with murder, and paranormal is involved there. So, I'd love to hear what you guys think. As always, you are free to send an email about the cases and topics that I talk about on this podcast at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. And if you ever want to tell me what you think about the podcast or tell me anything to look into, you can send that that way too. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode, as fucked up as that is for me to say because of what I do talk about on this podcast, but I do hope you continue to enjoy the content that I create for you. Now, as you can hear, the fireworks are getting more and more progressive, so it's time for me to say goodbye. I love you guys, stay safe, and happy Independence Day. I'm <laughs>